Welcome to Overthinking It TV Recaps, Game of Thrones, Season 4, Episode 1. I am Peter Fenzel. I am here with all of you today. Whether you are watching us streaming live on YouTube right now, or whether you are listening to us on our iTunes podcast account or our uh, TV Recap podcast, which is available through a variety of podcast platforms, we're out there on video, on YouTube, on audio. We're where you need to be. We want to be your second screen while you're watching the best shows on television. And we're really excited that this show has returned, that the Iron Throne is once more occupied by the butt of douchery. And we once again get to watch abject human suffering as our heroes futilely attempt to resolve their irreconcilable political and socioeconomic <laughs> problems. So as we endeavor upon this great adventure, uh, which we all love so much, uh, I'd love to introduce, we have a mighty, mighty panel today. Uh, the, the, I've, I haven't seen a panel like this since uh, since the White Bull uh, Hightower there, was the Lord. There aren't David. there aren't five kings anymore, but there are five podcasters. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. The kings are getting knocked off, but it takes a little bit more than that to take out a good podcaster. But let's go. Let's go in alphabetical order as we always do. Uh, ben Adams, how are you doing? How's your How's your return to Game of Thrones feeling? How How does it feel to be back in the back in the Iron Saddle, as it were? It, it it feels pretty good, Pete. I'm uh, I'm enjoying the new season, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm I'm feeling good. Oh, that's excellent. I'm I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear. It. You will, of course, as always, be our Game of Thrones naval uh, consultant. Right. There, there was no navy in this one. I was very disappointed. You know, oh, sorry, for, but, uh... <laughs> well, when when Salador San comes back and uh, it fulfills his promise to finally conquer King's Landing. Uh, but no, you have obviously uh, two-time Pop Fixers champion, Ben, I believe. I, I, I think so. Yeah, so I need to, we need to get that going again so I can get my, my crown. Definitely, that's true. Uh, let me do a little bit of mental math. Da, 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 da. Shana Malowski, how are you doing? I'm Next doing well. Hi, hey. everyone. Hey. What's up? It's harder than it seems, isn't it? The alphabetical order thing. Yeah, no, no, no it is. So Shana, how does it feel to be back in the Iron Saddle? Uh, I am back, uh, well, I guess twice over, because this is the second time I saw this first episode, and let me tell you, it really sucked the second, no, it was awesome, <laughs> it was great, glad to be back. Excellent, that's good, that's good, everyone, yeah, because you, you, talk, you talked about your experience at the, uh, what was it, was the, it's not the Game epic of Thrones Extreme, experience. experience, and we weren't sure if it was epic fan experience or epic fan experience, so we'll have to think about that. Later on, yes. uh, play their Game of Thrones. Usually, it is the small folk who suffer, but in your case, it is the common who comes out and does a big concert at the Barclay Center. As he says, life is like a Game of Thrones, and it's so true. It is an accurate man. Accurate man. Ryan Shealy is with us. How's it going, Ryan? Good. I mean, I can't. You can't actually even ask me how it is to return to Game of Thrones because this is my first Game of Thrones uh, recap because I actually only started watching the series after season three uh, ended. So shortly, I, um, I think after the end of season three, I got caught up on everything. So I'm kind of the Oberyn Martell of this podcast. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so get ready for some hand stabbing and dong grabbing. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, will pick up some business cards for you for that, for that task. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's great to have you on board. Maybe you'll spice up this season with some of your exotic... With my exotic <laughs> southern flair and my desire for revenge. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like half Antonio Banderas, half that Will Ferrell character who's the, like, horny college professor living 
lives in the woods. Fair amount of Inigo Montoya yeah, as well. I actually like to talk yeah. about that a little bit. That's true, that's true. But first we have to introduce Matt Rather. Matt Rather. Hey. Riding Stranger right there. There's Stranger, his giant microphone. <laughs> and I am astride. I podcast astride this microphone. <laughs> How does it feel to be back in the Iron Saddle, Matt? I'm, I'm, it's a little, I'm chafing. I have some chafing issues. Uh, on my, my thighs are not made of iron, even though the saddle is. And so uh, I just have to build up my calluses. Uh, my Game of Thrones recapping calluses, and I'll be good to ride alongside you, Pete. Uh, though I want a horse of my own. Oh, really? So now you want a pony. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love I love the ponies. I love the necklaces. The necklaces is actually kind of where I wanted to start. Uh, and I've really gotten into this I, this um, particular way of, of this doorway into television episodes, which I've decided to start calling the Downton Abbey moments of a given TV show, <laughs> which is not when you drag the unconscious body of the Turkish ambassador down the servant's stairs. Uh, the Downton Abbey moment in an episode is the, the conversation that happens in an episode of television about an innocuous, usually luxury good-related subject, right, that uh, serves as a metaphor for everything else that is happening in the episode and is kind of put in there as a hint, uh, or really as, a, as an act of self-gratification by the writers of the episode to, uh, to inform, like, sort of what the episode is about. Uh, and for me, and uh, you guys can all talk about your own paradigmatic moments, what you felt really informed this episode, but I felt like one of the paradigmatic moments of this episode, the Downton Abbey moment of this episode, was when Lady Oleana gave the order to go out, right, this episode is called Two Swords, that's like really important, this is a Mad Men style episode in the sense that it has a title that tells you what it's about, and then it collects parts of the story from various different parts of where the through lines coexist in the books and puts them together so they're all happening at the same time because they all have something in common. If thematic things in common, structural things in common, episode's about something. It's about two swords is what this one's about. Uh, and Lady Oleana puts out the order and says, uh, make, have everyone bring their best necklaces, right? If she wants the best necklaces, there's going to be a contest for the best necklace for Lady Marjorie to wear at her wedding to King Joffrey. And uh, the, the one with the best necklace gets to keep the second best necklace. And uh, I felt that that described the spirit of co-opetition as, uh, as, a, as a sort of nonprofit business student might say, which is not me, but somebody else. The, the idea that this episode is full of people who are technically in a parallel power relationships where they're sort of working towards the same goal, but they've been set up in competitive relationships by some sort of overarching institution or some sort of a social a dynamic of the situation uh, where they're going to come into conflict perhaps based on how successful they are at pursuing their mutual goals. Um, I mean, the other big moment is uh, like Dario and, and Grey Worm holding their swords out, right, to try to see whose metal penis Daenerys is going to want to be hanging out with. And she says, neither of you, right, because you're stupid and douchey. But anyway, uh, what, do you guys, how do you guys see the sort of the two swords episode? Uh, for you, did the, the name of it have the same weight for you in the interpretation? Or did you, did you um, interact with it in a different way? Well, I was thinking of, uh, of course, the two swords you see at the very beginning of the episode, which uh, Tywin was making out of, if we're going in the phallic direction, which I feel like we should, um, made from <laughs> Ned Stark's 
gigantic dick into two kind of smaller, less effective dicks. Right. One that's going to be uh, wielded in the left hand of Jamie, so not as uh, strong as his right hand, unfortunately. And uh, the second sword to be used, I assume, by King Joffrey, but I guess that remains to be seen. Um, so in this episode, we have all the Lannisters wielding their power, especially at the end of the episode, um, the Kingsguard going throughout the countryside, and there's really no one to go against them. They are the swords in this world. There's no other swords, supposedly, until the Hound and Arya come along, uh, to fight them. But if you compare them to the Ned Stark sword from the very first episode, you know, these Lannister swords, they might be made of, Lannis of, of Valerian steel. They might seem as strong, but they are smaller and I would say weaker. And, you know, Ned Stark did die, but his, uh, his philosophy is strong and it lives on through his, his children, I would say. Don't forget, Sheena, though, the two swords of Oberyn and the pr Procurer. Yes. In the, uh, <laughs> yes, in yes the, indeed. In the brothel. Uh, there in another, it's no, it's no little finger giving, giving whore lessons, but it was, it did verge on, and it is no Podrick Payne sexual tyrannosaur, <laughs> but, uh, it no, does. There's one first reference. Well, there's also the two swords of, uh, Polliver and the other douchebag peeing outside of the inn at the end of the episode, right? Like, right. like this is. The two sword reference to the dongage is is purposeful. Like if we're going right, if we're going the full dong, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, but I think that oh, oh sorry, go ahead, you, you go ahead. I no, think I'll there's go a, ahead. Oh, oh no, you go ahead. No, Ryan, Ryan has the sword. It's Ryan's sword right now. Put your swords away. Well, are we just gonna Matt, Matt and I are just gonna stare at each other intently, making eye contact to uh, to see who uh, uh, drops our, our our pencil sword first? Um, I got it right here. The back of the line, both of you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so what I was going to say, that I think the, another way in which the two swords manifest itself is in actually going from three to two, going from triangles of people to two people. And there were a number of really noteworthy times in this episode where there's a set piece of three people and someone says, w would you mind excusing us? Or I need to have a private moment. And the first one I think is when Tyrion says this uh, to, to uh, Oberyn uh, Martell, um, I think one of the really interesting ones is when um, – uh, is in a uh, following scene, almost uh, the next scene after that, when Tyrion um, is talking to Shay um, and Sansa, uh, and he says, I, I need to talk to my wife. And everyone's kind of confused about what that means in that in that setting. Um, and then going on, there's, uh, I think, uh, Brienne um, uh, asks for a private moment with... Um, uh, uh, with with Marjorie and uh, there may be um, a few others uh, going on. I believe um, there may be one um, for near the end um, with Daenerys as well. And I think that there's a few. I, I think why how this relates, um, other than it, you know, going from three to to two. I think that another thing that's happening in the making of the um, it, it, what I see in the imagery of of making the two swords from from the one is you know uh, the part of how it's shot is this one thing is melted down and this thing that is solid and has history and has been used and and, and has narrative importance um, gets deconstructed and taken apart and then put together in another configuration and as these um, uh, individuals are uh, uh, 
as we're having these um, three, these set pieces of threes, usually threes, uh, at least three focal points, or maybe a larger group getting cleaved into twos, we're seeing kind of new pairs emerge. And I, I've mm-hmm. I caught up on some of um, of, of your, your guys' old episodes from last year, and you, you know, there were a few episodes last season where there were these these duo um, these duo yeah. scenes, or these duo pair. episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that pair episode. Um, and so I think that this is interesting because this is indicative of not just you know shifting relationships of who is related to whom, but kind of the um, you know now that we're in a, a you know a post-war uh, period and in a, a kind of period of, of homecoming, it is not that we just have the swords that we had, but in fact we have new swords and we have new things that are being that are being forged. And I think that that's how, one way that I sort of see the symbolism. Uh, playing out in the actual structure of the of the scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's a way in which we have to kind of reconstitute the conflicts that are going to drive the the show because the people who were the conflicts before, a lot of them are gone, right? right. Like, you know, Rob is dead and Stannis is far away. So we need we're going to need conflicts, but we don't want to just throw the conflicts out there. We don't want to just have like, oh no, it's Mothra! Ah, we have to fight Mothra, right? Like. Although they could do that, and I wouldn't have a problem with it, but I have no taste, and we've established this. But uh, but yeah, but like they need to re- they're they're melding and melting and re- and all the social relationships are reconstituting. Uh, ben, uh, we've we we haven't heard from you yet, and you, please, you're a consultant on a wide variety of topics, not just on naval matters. Well, what's your take on the two on the two swords episodes so far? What do you think? Kind of going off what you're going after, it's important that it's the Stark sword that's broken into two, mm. because up until this point, the show has been a Stark sword. It's been about the battle of the, the Starks against everybody else. I mean, obviously, there's lots of other plot lines, but very, I think as an audience, we're very much invested in first Ned Stark and then Rob Stark, uh, but now that's gone. Like the, the season is now shattered from the story of the Starks to a couple different stories all around Westeros. Um, and so the, the fact that the, this, this sword that was representative of their kind of reign over the story is now shattered into, it melted down and shattered into new stories. And so that's kind of where we're going from here is, is narratively a much more diffuse uh, storyline because the, the big wars, at least for now, are, seem to be over. And so it's going to be these smaller plot lines from here on out. Oh, Ben, the war's not won. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you mind well, if I, uh, oh sorry, Pete, go no, on. No, no, jump, jump by all means. Oh, do you mind if I jump in and go back to a previous topic, uh, switch from the phallic swords back to the, uh, you know, circular necklaces that we were talking about oh. earlier with uh, the Queen of Thorns? Uh, because, yeah, sure. Yes, yes, because uh, uh, the episode was called Two Swords. This is a very masculine show, of course, but it was also an episode of, well, two sort of necklaces, um, all the necklaces that uh, the Queen of Thorns is looking at versus the necklace uh, that Sansa got from Sir Dantos. Um, and I thought that was an interesting uh symbolic choice uh, where you have the the first necklaces that are all uh, decorative but disliked. Um, They're supposed to be used in this wedding um, to be made into stories. Um, The Queen of Thorns was saying, you know, they're going to write songs about you, Marjorie, when you're wearing this necklace versus Sir Dantos's necklace, um, which already has a story within it, um, the story of his mother. that he, you know, passes along to Sansa saying, like, this is all that I have left. I'm giving it to you. It has an emotional 
core to it, even though it looks pretty crappy. Um, you could sort of uh, compare that to the flowers that Dario gives to Daenerys that look kind of, you know, not the greatest flowers. Daenerys wants to shove them away, but they have this not only an emotional meaning, but they have a meaning that the lower classes, I guess Serdantos used to be you know, a knight, but now he's of the lower classes, I guess, as a fool. But uh, these lower class meanings um, that maybe are more powerful um, than the meanings that the members of the upper classes can take from them, and maybe it's a sign that as the season goes along, uh, the more low-status characters will have power from their more emotional secret meanings for their symbols, uh, versus the higher class characters who only see the decorative uh, outsides or the songs, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think another way that this could go, or another way that I also read that, um, is that it. It, it, it could also separate types of the kind of higher status characters of those who have either empathy with or understanding of those who they are ruling um, versus those who do not. And so that it's, 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 a, it's as a, you know, this understanding um, of and, and empathy with and respect for um, the, um, the kind of lower classes or the, the, you know, the downtrodden as a source of, uh, of legitimacy, right? And, and one of the things um, that Dario says is that you have to know a land to rule it. Um, and, and that's, you know, very different um, from what the, um, you know, the, the guys in the last scene that, um, you know, that Arya ends up killing say of, you know, we're, when you're wearing the king's colors, you can do whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so that these are, you know, and so juxtaposing the two necklaces um, indicates these different sources of, of, of where legitimacy is coming from. On one hand, it's just, you know, things are important because they give you they allow you to buy violence and do things and you you take and and spend things and um and in the other cases you know things are embedded in everyday life and and in and and, and and in relationships and there's emotion embedded in them and so that kind of i mean one thing that shows it's interesting that it's it seems to be Daenerys and Sansa who are um associated with things in in that way um as opposed to um you know, Marjorie Terrell and many of the, the rest of the Lannisters. One of the relationships that really jumped out at me uh, as exemplifying a lot of what you were both talking about is the scene between Tormund, Giant's Bane, and I assume that's Magnar of Fen, but the Fen. I don't know if they named the Fen. I thought that the Magnar, isn't Magnar a title? Oh, he's, he's like the king, right? Yeah. He's well, the only they, one that the I've ever been named in the books. Uh, the, the Magnar of the Fens is, the, is like a living god. To the, oh, in the okay. tribe of the in the tribe of the Fens. Okay, so this guy is just like a, a sort of lieutenant of the Fen, as it were. <laughs> this is like Lieutenant Commander Jordy Lefen, right? <laughs> um, which is, I mean, this is a this was particularly interesting because it's a big departure from the books. Uh, in in the books, the Fens they are a different culture that is without uh, that is beyond the wall and is a separate culture from the culture of the wildlings as we understand them of course the uh, the recognition that so many americans come to when they travel abroad which is that places that look big and monolithic actually often have all sorts of different cultures in them like we we what we learn in this episode is that the area beyond the walls is kind of multinational it's like a multinational pseudo state right uh, and that the fens are a very different people from the wildlings the free folk as they call themselves and uh, and what is a what possession right has a more complex 
relationship with story and with consumption than the eating of human flesh, right? Particularly the eating of human flesh for survival, right? That person's arm had a story. That meant something to somebody a lot, right? And, uh, and, and certainly it means something to Tormund, and it, it means a very different thing to the Then that Tormund is talking to. And uh, the, the ideas of legitimacy and the ideas of survival uh, are really tested because the free folk like to think of themselves as absolutists in the interest of their own freedom and, you know, their own freedom, self-preservation, their, their, their concept of, you know, wintry liberty, of like al alpine, alpine dependence. I don't really know how you would describe the political system of the, like, the let's all wear leather and beat each other up and then make out in hot spring caves as a form of government. Like, I don't know how you would describe that. But uh, it was interesting. They're hill people. It's what uh, a political scientist Jim but, Scott would call a hill people. Um, no, and, no, no, in in, in the book, uh, the art of not being governed. No, I mean this is a real. It's a real. Oh, term. okay, okay. Because there are hill people that will show up later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the hill people are there's Lothar of the hill people. <laughs> Lothar of the no no there, there are hill people the the um oh gosh what is their name uh the not the pine, the ones with the pine cones on their shields. But anyway, they show up later. They're, they're, don't worry about it. But yeah, there are yet another culture that lives up north. But yeah, yeah. The, the hill people is the word for those sort of people who live in, who at least claim or believe that they live in an ungoverned society. Yet here they have this big, strong taboo against cannibalism that the Fens don't appear to share. And of course, the Fen then appear to engage in cannibalism in kind of a, you know, rather organized fashion. This is not something that someone's like, oh, I'm going to eat an arm. And they're like, you're so crazy, man. You're so crazy. I know. They're like, let's cut up the arms and eat them because that's what we do. And then can you help me, bro? Because I need to get this spot with the scar tattoo thing that I missed. Back <laughs> think, I'm going for kind of a that... gold Ducat thing. It's kind of a... <laughs> in that bag, do you think there was just arms? I mean, did they when they when they ordered at the window, did they just order the arms or did they get some thighs and some torsos as well? <laughs> I said no dark meat. <laughs> <laughs> but what I wanted to connect that to, what you were saying before, a couple things, right, um, is this idea we're talking about the, um, the, the prioritization of story and, and material means, right? The Lady Oleana, she wants there to be a big wedding because she thinks it's important for political stability. She takes pleasure in it, but she also loves her job and she doesn't work a day in her life, right? So she's like, I love to make up stories that cause people to follow me and, and give my family riches and, and influence. Um, and so she knows she has to create a story to sort of get the goods and get the stuff that she wants. Whereas Dantos, you know, like he has the story. That's all he has. He doesn't have the goods. And this is the thing that he's giving. And, and the story is kind of larger than him. Um, and I felt like the line, well, line that really has to do a lot of this and connects back with uh, the Fens is when, you know, they ask, when uh, Polliver asks the Hound, you know, are you going to die for chickens? Oh, no, and is it, is it, the, is that, the, is that the Hound? Yes, yeah, the Hound that gets asked that, right? Are yes. you going to die for chickens? Yes. Or is it Jamie that gets asked that? No, it's the Hound, and the, and hound, the hound replies, yeah. someone's going to die for chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chicken's um, my business, and chicken is good. <laughs> I mean, this is a series that's obsessed with food. So this, I mean, for me, I, reading the books, I'm like really intent on what does food mean in these books? Because I love food. And I was really excited by all the food that, that was present in this episode. It's been jumped up a couple of books for some reason, uh, which is great. Drops by dragons. Well, oh, yeah. Yeah, the lamb. The lamb that the dragons drop. What did you think about that, Ben? Uh, I just thought I just that was another example of food in this episode. But that, I mean, that was, <laughs> I mean, that was interesting because it's very much like uh, that was very clearly signaling that you know 
Danny, despite her authority over the dragons, like this is this is something she can't quite control. And, and we see that in a lot of different places that purported authority doesn't quite do the trick. That the um, you know the wildlings don't have any authority. And Joffrey, like you know, people keep assuring Joffrey that the people love him, but we all know that that's not true. That like everybody <laughs> probably hates him. And that there's that the rulers have a kind of a sentimental relationship to their authority, right? Because Sir. Uh... Uh, Sir Bear of Bear Island, right, says to Danny, um, "Don't, don't. They're they're freaking dragons, lady. Don't, don't. Uh, you know, don't treat them like pets anymore. You know." Um, and uh, and Joffrey, Joffrey also sort of has this sentimental relationship to his own authority, where it's like, "Well, yes, the Tyrells are bringing in all the food, but I, but I, you know, am the great agency. I have the big sword, and my sword enables all of the little swords. And as rulers, anyone who does anything does anything in my name. They participate in my agency, but I, you know, I am be the nothing without a king. <laughs> so, so these are ways that we're reforging the conflicts that are going to form." season right there's one where we're taking social dynamics and we're, we're melting them down and reshaping them and we're reconfiguring people in different you know pairs basically different groups but there's also this idea that the king isn't safe um, right that the people who are in charge who now seem to be dominant and really know what they're doing and have their sh their ish together as it were I don't want to put those chili peppers on the Eudora uh, that sends you this podcast uh, like Daenerys and like Joffrey um, maybe they're not safe. Well, they're clearly not safe because Jamie said it, and you know you don't say those sorts. Of, and I can't, I don't can't expect Jamie's gonna be like, I gotta be the king's guard, and then like nothing ever happens, right. and everybody hangs out and has a good that's, time, yeah, and there's never any that's problems. Chekhov's, Chekhov's so, hook. You know? What's up? That's Chekhov's hook for a hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you put a when you put a hook, a hook would be more practical. <laughs> a hook would be more practical. Yeah. <laughs> Except when you're feeling up your sister. But oh, that, that didn't happen. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that because that's another big. I do, I do want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to segue from talking. the from the cannibal arm, but we didn't get there. So. Well, no, we could, we could tie that in as well. We'll go back to the cannibal arm. Let's talk about let's talk about like Lady 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 Red Vino and her uh, and her relationship <laughs> problems with her incest bro. Uh, Shana, go for it. Well, I, I don't know that I have a thesis about this, but I have a question to throw out there. This was an episode where there was a lot of food, but a lot of food that people weren't eating, like the arm you see, but you don't see people eating it. Sansa refuses to eat the lemon cakes and all the other stuff that was put out for her. And then it was also an episode where people's sexual appetites were you know not fulfilled. Um, you know, There were at least three people, or actually more than that, um, who wanted to have sex in this episode and then were, you know, didn't get to for whatever reason. You had uh, Jamie and Cersei, and Cersei's uh, saying no. Uh, you had Dario, not Dario, um, Oberyn and Alaria Sand uh, didn't get to be with their whole coterie of prostitutes um, and uh, who else? Oh, uh, Tyrion and uh, Shay, of course. Um, so, yeah, I guess a question to throw out to the group. Uh, what do you make of this? I guess at the very end of the episode, you finally have someone uh, you know, getting their appetite 
uh, filled by, you know, when the hound finally gets to eat his chickens that he so desired. But uh, what, what are we to make of all of these people getting blue balled in one way or another? And also, all it, they all, there is like a, a prominent hand aspect to all of them, <laughs> right? Whether it's the, whether it's the, you know, the uh, long dwarf finger or whether it's uh, Oberyn, you know, grabbing the crotch of the procurer or, you know, uh, or the golden hand of Jamie. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, hands. Uh, handsome, handsome. Yeah. Brain. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it is interesting. Well, uh, I, mean, I, I thought it was really interesting that it sounded like Cer Cersei was kind of breaking up with Jamie. Yeah. Right? Like that, that their relationship was, was different. And, uh, and that that was a big change, right? So it's not just that people were, it is, I mean, yes, people were blue-balled, and that's important because this stuff matters. Appetites matter in this, in this series. But it's interesting because they were, they were meaningful frustrations of appetite. Um, and, and in the sense that these are, these are things that, can't, that have changed. They can't quite be the same. There's something that's different. There's something that's wrong. Uh, there's something that's wrong between Cersei and Jaime. There's something that's wrong between Shay and Tyrion. And we don't know whether it's going to be fixed or not. Then there's probably something wrong with Oberyn, right? Like that, uh, I mean, his quest for vengeance basically is consuming him. Um, well, not consuming him. Yeah, I mean, he'd rather he'd rather stab Lannisters than stab a dude. Like, <laughs> sexy stab. <laughs> Two swords. Um, the right and and then at the end it's a little I, maybe we should maybe we should not get uh, maybe we should stick a pin in this no pun intended but uh, at, you know at the end um, like lust for sex lust for food and lust for blood uh, are all sort of examples of of appetites that I think the show invites us to um, examine uh, the relationship between between all three and then and like the the way. Um, Arya's uh, sort of conversion to to bloodlust and revenge. I guess it's not bloodlust. It's more sort of it's more revenge, right? Because Arya is the one who goes to bed with her prayer of the people that that have hurt her, who she's going to uh, take revenge on one day. Um, th this uh, sort of the the look on her face as she rides away is one of of kind of satisfaction, right, of an appetite for revenge that's been satisfied, mm. you know? Uh, and, and sort of wonderfully acted, I thought, by Maisie Williams. But I sort of, I wonder about that storytelling choice because my, my recollection of, of the, uh, the similar transformation in the set of novels was that it was more desperate and that I had more mixed feelings about it as, you know, as it happened in the novels. It was really, uh, uh, there was a sense of, um, oh, that's dark, rather than a sense of like, oh, goody, you know, uh, which, which I think the show underscored with the like super triumphal statement of the theme song uh, when, you know, when Arya spikes the guy uh, under his chin and uh, and rides away and now has her own horse, right? It's it's this sort of it's this moment of triumphal coming of age, um, being able to uh, uh, meet out violence with the the best of them, 
because um, the hound is the best of them. And uh, and dum bum ba da dum bum ba ba ba. She's a killer. She's a killer. She's a killer. She's a you know. Um, I don't know. I I had mixed feelings about about the way that was that was played. And and hey, I I am a fan. Reading the books, I am a fan of Arya the Stone Killer like no other. Uh, I think she's badass and awesome, but but there it, it's almost like there was nothing lost. There was no price paid for this this transformation, um, iron or otherwise. And so yeah, I don't know. I had mixed feelings about it going uh, at the end of the episode. Yeah, Ben, how do you feel about all this stuff that we've been talking about? So the, the, the my one thought about the the kind of the blue balls, um, so <laughs> the, the unfulfilled <laughs> desires here is I mean, part of that. Just this this the structure of this as a season premiere that it's setting the table. And so desires can't be fulfilled yet because we still have nine episodes left to go. Um, and I'm also interested in, so Arya, you know, she's finally getting her revenge. And I'm interested in how a lot of the conflicts that are being set up here are, you know, the violence begets violence. So, you know, the uh, Oberon Martell is coming. You know, we're seeing that, you know, this is just one, one damn thing after another. His vengeance isn't even from the last war. It's from two wars ago. That his his problem is you know so it, this episode doesn't let us believe for a second that anything's really been resolved uh, just because the the wars are temporarily done like any victory is at best a tactical a, a tactical victory mm-hmm. um, and it, it's setting that up with all these unfulfilled desires that there's still all these loose ends hanging out there to be stabbed or beheaded or you know. And that actually that actually relates to one of the arcs we haven't talked about, which is Jon Snow, uh, who inter- interfaces with all these themes. Uh, he's got his two swords because he's hanging out with Sam, right? And they're they're bros, they're sword bros, uh, and they have the sort of like I feel inadequate relative to Rob, and I feel inadequate relative to you, and let's all stand in a circle. Um, no, uh, and uh, and then there's the there's the desire of the acting commander of the Night's Watch to get his vengeance on John for humiliating him early on in John's training career. And that sort of set both his frustrated desire for vengeance, right, which to match up with all the other frustrated desires for things, uh, sort of headed off at the past by Meister Eamon. Uh, and also John's desire for sexy times, which has been sated, right, which, we, we are, which is recalled in rather surprising fashion in this, uh, in this scene. We're reminded, and John just sort of says it, you know, I did it. And it's like, well, people do this sort of stuff. It happens. All right. You know, roll out. Um, I mean, did you guys have any thoughts about where Jon Snow is at this point in the story? Well, he knows nothing. No, fair enough. <laughs> so, Ryan, you want to talk about that arm again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the one line from that scene uh, where the they were judging Jon Snow that was interesting was uh, Master Eamon's line that none of us are free. And he was referring specifically to the Night's Watch, that none of them are free, no matter what they do. Even if they can leave the room, they're still not not free at all. Uh, but arguably that's true of most of the people in this episode, that they're locked into some role or another, and they're not really free to pursue another course. I, I think that, um, I mean, I think that connecting Jon Snow to some of the other, to the to the vengeance, uh, the two vengeance stories, actually, is that one thing that I noticed in all three of those scenes, and in those, all three of those scenes, uh, that is the uh, Oberyn uh, Martell scene, um, kind of explained to Tyrion why he is in King's Landing, um, and the uh, Arya revenge scene, um, and Jon Snow scene, is people giving it uh, an account of themselves, and, and of, of why they are doing what they're doing, um, and, and of not exactly justification, but kind of 
you know, cre recreating identity through through the story, um, and this happens in a, a few different ways. And I mean, I joked early on that there was that Oberyn Martell had a little bit of this, like, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. Um, you know, uh, you kill my father, prepare to die. But I think that there, you know, that once I saw that um, the the way that um, Arya reenacted the the scene um, in which uh, Polliver stole the sword and, and like played that out um again kind of word for word it, it again um you know underscored this idea of of repetition of, of telling the story again out loud uh, and i think this connects to john snow of you know in some ways the way that you tell it and externalize it to the world um is what makes it real and in some ways i think you even see this a little bit with jamie and cersei of saying well this is you know what happened, uh, and it's not all of what happened because we saw it happen. We saw it happen when we watched it before, and we saw it in the previously on Game of Thrones. Um, and and I think that actually this is an interesting thing where you know just as the previously on Game of Thrones selects pieces to frame why it's going to be important this episode, we, you see these characters choosing these individual pieces um, to to represent, you know, what they're what they're doing, and and so you know, I guess revenge is always somewhat you know backward looking, um, as is a a trial. Um, but what that does is that everyone is you know rather than just tying up loose ends, it, you kind of they're they are both looking backwards, but then they're giving themselves there the, you know the the episode ends with Arya riding out you know Arya and the hound kind of riding out across the the riverlands the kind of devastated riverlands um and so you have in some ways these kind of conceptualizations of of self these 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 you know narratives these defenses these accounts are somewhat of the fuel that is you know bringing these characters to these these precipices and then you know everything is out stretching out in front of them um and so i you know, I don't know that was that was the connection that i saw in in all of those and i think at a few other points in the episode too where people are saying what they're doing it's like the, it's a lot like the the white book of the kingsguard with yeah. Jamie lannister's white page spread out that he he has the opportunity to fill up uh, yeah. over the course of the rest of his career right or joffrey um Sorry, <laughs> or, or uh, Joffrey's big statue of him with the the direwolf underneath him, uh, which recalls, uh, I guess, from the first season when the direwolf attacked him, and his mother said to him, "Oh, you fought off a direwolf. That will be your story." And he said, "No, I was just screaming," which is exactly what you know yeah. happened. And this is he, uh, him, you know, reconceptualizing it. Um, but contrast that to the the book that Jamie's in, Jamie can't control his own story. Someone else has to write it for him, whereas Joffrey is the one who is writing his own story. So I guess that's the difference between those with power and those without, which I guess goes back to what we were saying before about um, Marjorie and the Queen of Thorns, full circle mm -hmm. at the beginning of the mm -hmm. recap. Like a necklace, a full necklace. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a, a question about uh, haircuts. There's a lot of haircuts for it. <laughs> In this episode, and in oh, fact, yeah, there's a lot of significant haircuts in this episode. Uh, do you, I mean, you guys see, I, like they put pairs of people together, the two swords, right? And a lot of the time, they give people new haircuts, similar haircuts, uh, who look like they ought to be hanging out with each other. Like I was struck by how similar uh, Arya's and the Hound's haircuts look mm -hmm. after we saw how similar Jamie's and Brienne's haircuts look when they were hanging out with each other. Right. I mean, did this, and there are other examples too, I think. Uh, I guess Grey Worm and Dario have very different haircuts, but Barristan and Jorah Mormont have more similar haircuts. 
uh, and maybe that shows that they're more of a bro team, and Dario and Grey Worm are like less of a bro team. Uh, I don't know. Did, that, did anything sort of visual, anything kind of uh, in the costuming or in the visual presentation of the episode strike anybody? Well, speaking of Dario, um, and this is both uh, both kind of visual, but also comes goes even to the deeper production level of casting. But uh, Dario um, was recast, yes. right? And because I heard Dario in my mind, uh, I was like the one with the cheekbones and the long flowing locks. And now he's the one with the beard. And, uh, and that like, that really, um, it's one of these things as of someone who's, um, you know, a newcomer to Game of Thrones, and then uh, you know, and is is I'm working my way through the books, but I'm only about halfway through the second book. Um, that change was enough to just throw everything. I'm like, wait, wait, I thought I knew who Dario was. <laughs> now I know. I, I'm Jon Snow. I know nothing. Can anyone uh, really uh, know who Dario is, though? So, Shana, uh, what do you think of the new Dario? Um, I think he, well, just from a superficial standpoint, I think that I understand personally more why Daenerys would be attractive. What do you think of the new Dario? <laughs> I think he is hot, but I wish he had blue uh, forked <laughs> beard hairs at the bottom. So I'm yeah. a little disappointed about that. But mm-hmm. I, I, I was the casting. I was a little bit concerned because I, I'm a little bit concerned with the new Dar- Dario because it's really important to Dario's character that he'd be very viscerally attractive and to Daenerys. And one of the things that I admire about the show is that it takes seriously the the sensory experiences of the characters, which is a lot of what the series is about. We've been talking about it, and it's really it, it is it has had a a, a certain maturity in uh, allowing. In a, in a, as you said, a very male-dominated show, allowing there to be, like, female sexual fantasies that are being acted out, right? Like, you know, Cal Drogo is there for the ladies, right? And, like, the reverse Dario sure wasn't there for the acting. Like, he was there for the ladies. And Dario in the books and the story is really, it's really important that he be attractive. Because he does, I mean, even even to just talk about the things he's already done, he murdered his companions and he turned tail, he like turned the cloak of his mercenary company just because he wanted to have sex with Daenerys. Like, this is a guy who is not necessarily the kind of guy that you want to be hanging out with. He's dangerous and he's, he's not loyal, right? I mean, that's what we've seen about him so far, at least. I don't know what he's going to do in the future. I'm not going to talk about that. But it's like, there, there was something about the fact that, you know, this guy could be a total idiot, and totally useless, and I think Daenerys would still go for it because he's pretty attractive, right? Like, that's the sense that I got looking at the old Dario. And this Dario is like, well, he's nice. You know, and if, if it's sort of like, if this is like kind of a Mark Ruffalo situation, what I said is, why is he, oh, he's pulling a Kevin Klein, is what he did. Is he, he pulled that whole scene right out of French Kiss, you know, where he's like, oh, here's the flowers from the land, right? Like, smell the box of the flowers from my vineyard. Like, hey, Meg yeah, Ryan. I'm surprised he wasn't out there with a boombox, like, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> holding it on top of his head. <laughs> yeah, and I just, like, I don't know. Wait, were you saying something, Matt? Are you frustrated with me right now? <laughs> he he kind of lucked out on timing, because if he had waited, like, one mile down the road, that gesture would have just not gone over very well. <laughs> Oh, these corpses smell terrible. Take some flowers. They're nice. Look over your shoulder, Dario. Look, look over. Look over. <laughs> Inappropriate. <laughs> oh, so Ryan, how about that arm, huh? Uh, delicious. <laughs> we're in. The, we're in pretty much what I think should be time for these things. I know for Breaking Bad, we would often go well over the length of the actual episode, and I know for a community, you guys pride yourselves. 
I'm going we, way we over. We to double here. up. Yeah, we have <laughs> to double should, up. Yeah. This episode length. <laughs> but I feel like we should probably keep these around around a link around this 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 space. So, any any final thoughts about this episode? Um, about Brienne's culottes. I've been told by my girlfriend that these are culottes that she's wearing. These baggy pants. It was not a skirt. Uh, <laughs> I thought they looked hilarious. Thought they were great. Uh, any other any other thoughts about two swords before? Well, we yeah, I mean, I, the, just this is whimsical, but the idea of creating two swords from from one sword um, reminds me a little bit of the the Sorcerer's Apprentice and like cleaving the broom in half, and suddenly there are there are two brooms. And but it strikes me that there's something to it. There's a multiplication of problems that actually, like when you qu- turn one problem into two problems by cleaving it in half, it's actually harder to deal with two problems at half size than it is to deal with one problem at full size. And when you carry that out uh, you know, on, on an exponential scale, which I think is what happens when these sort of monolithic forces like the Starks that, that existed in this detente in Westeros, um, uh, are smashed, you know, it, it, it becomes, um, it, it becomes almost the war of all against all south of the wall. And then the wildlings north of the wall who no one no, I mean, and it's partly racism about the wildlings, but it's partly their, you know, um, firm commitment to individualism, right? No one could unite them. You know, says says Janos Slint. By the way, Janos Slint, nice little callback to uh, nice little callback to the early gold cloaks. Um, uh, it there's been this there's been this reversal where like instead of having a few large powerful forces, you know, in in uh, tension but in stasis, now suddenly you have two swords, four swords, eight swords, sixteen, thirty two, uh, and on exponentially. Um, and and you have sort of a mess to deal with. And as Arya reminds us by uh, getting back needle, it doesn't really matter how small your sword is. You know, it's how you wield it. And even a very small person with a very tiny thin sword can make a, a real big mess just everywhere, just all over. So I think that really ties into uh, what you just said. Also that with the procurer. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, you can, anyone can make a necklace. <laughs> well, small name. Well, but Ben, what do you have to say about all this? Uh, the only thing I have to say is uh, if every Lannister you meet is a pain in your ass, you need to consider the possibility that you're the pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we might leave it there for the day. Uh, but we got a whole season of Game of Thrones up ahead. So uh, watch the throne, catch the throne, patch the throne, th- thrash the throne. Do whatever you got to do. Do whatever Common tells you to do. But after you do it, come listen to us. Come watch us. Let us be that second screen for you on this journey through this wonderful season of television. It's going to be a good one. Uh, we can tell you. We can promise you that. Let us let us tell you what you think. Yeah, let, let, <laughs> we'll tell you things you can tell other people. And then when, when they think it was you that said it, you could be like, oh, well, it was easy. And you're like, I was doing my grocery list that whole time in my head. Like, I didn't have to work. I mean, yeah, we're, yeah, the, we're the Ciro de, Cyrano de Bergerac of your upper middle class <laughs> dinner party. <laughs> and the other, the other side of it is that if you tell people what we said and then and, and you want them and they like it, you can claim it's your opinion. And if they don't like it, you can say, I heard that on this crazy podcast that I listen to <laughs> with these morons who are talking about haircuts and culottes. And they'd be like, really? I love culottes. Are those those pants? And they'd be like, yes. 
And they said, go to their website. I was like, well, what website is that? I don't have a computer. It's like, get a computer. It's 2014. But once you get a computer or a phone or like a tablet, you get a coffee cup that has a computer in it now. It's crazy. <laughs> Great. But steer that baby in the direction of www.overthinkingit.com. Uh, and, and, of course, our iTunes account. Subscribe. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Get these updates. Uh, and, you know, you hear a show you're not – you hear a show on this feed you're not listening to, you're not watching – uh, just skip that episode, and we'll get you with another one, all right? But you go to those places, you come to us, and uh, you join us in our wonderful endeavor to subject the popular culture to level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. deserve.